0: This is Jason Hansen, pastor of Anchor Church. Thank you for jumping onto our sermon podcast. My prayer is that as you listen to this sermon, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus and that you live for him in all of life. Enjoy the sermon now. Go ahead and turn your uh, Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, you can download the YouVersion app. Uh, it's an app on your phone or your device. And um, we're going to be using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, this morning, Um, to read through, but you can turn to the book of Ruth now as we start this new series that we've talked about this morning already, the kindness of God in the book of Ruth. If you've never read the book of Ruth before, it really is a beautiful book. Um, I would encourage you to take some time this week to read all the way through it. It's only four chapters. It really doesn't take that long. In fact, I read through it this morning, and it took me about 25 minutes with a uh, baby distracting me asking me for Buzz Lightyear. So um, it's, it's really not a long read, um, uh, but I would encourage you to do that. It's just helpful as we are preaching through the book to have the full context of the story. Um, so do that this week. Ruth chapter one. Um, now, I think this is well-documented around here, but in case you didn't know this about me, uh, I despise awkward situations. I am allergic to awkward social situations. And Marlene is laughing at me awkwardly Because she knows she likes to put me in those situations. I I hate them. And what I realize is there are two different types of people. Those who hate awkward situations. And those who, I don't know if they love them. If they're not aware that they're happening. I don't know. But those who seem to walk into awkward social situations with no problem. Uh, Recently, I was at Target on the weekend. Just grabbing a couple quick things. And I, I, I saw a coworker at Target. And so, because I hate awkward social situations, I thought, I am going to avoid this man like the plague. I am going nowhere near him. Because there's something about work relationships where they're fine at work. And this guy in particular, we have a great working relationship. We, we talk at work. We get along at work. We even talk about things outside of work at work. And it all works well. But it only works well at work. And I know that. So when I saw him, I was like, nope. I'm going to the bread aisle. I need bread. I'm avoiding him. I'm going to the bread aisle. But this man is the other type of person. And so he tracked me down. He saw me too. We never made eye contact. So I don't know when he saw me, but he saw me too. And he came to me in the bread aisle. And we had a conversation that made me want to crawl inside of myself and die. And uh, there was a lot of me staring at the floor, a lot of me staring at the bread, a lot of me thinking, why is he doing this to me? why? I thought we liked each other. I thought we were friends at work. And here's the thing, that man walked away without bread. He didn't need bread. He was in the bread aisle simply to talk to me. What a jerk, right? (laughs) There's two different types of people, some who avoid awkward situations, some who love them, but there's another type of situation in which I think everyone falls into one category. We all try and avoid them, and that is a desperate situation a situation in which you find yourself desperate with little to no option at the end of your rope. In fact, we all go through great lengths to avoid desperate situations. Maybe you settle for a job or stay in a job that is sucking the life out of you, but you fear the desperation of not having that paycheck or even the desperation of not having this lifestyle, and so you stay in it. You tough it out. Some of us settle for relationships that are ill-advised, less than ideal, even destructive, because we fear the desperation of loneliness. Many of us, we we sit and we do what's known as a doom scroll on our phone because we just want to avoid the desperation of boredom being faced with the ordinariness of our lives, or we want to check out from all of those stressful situations in our lives that are making us feel our limitations, feel just how desperate we are. But here's the problem, church. I think all of us avoid desperate situations, right? Here's the problem. God doesn't. As you're going through the target of your life, you see a desperate situation, and you and I, we all book it for the bread aisle, And God rolls up on us with a little grin on his face. Hey, good to see you. That desperate situation comes and finds us because God isn't afraid of a desperate situation. In fact, God sees a desperate situation as a beautiful opportunity to display his grace and his character, which is cool, except for we're the desperate ones. So it ain't fun, is it? It's important for us to understand for us to grasp this reality that God isn't afraid of a desperate situation. Because if we don't understand that, if we miss that, then when we're trying to avoid that desperate situation, when we are in the bread aisle of our lives, just hoping to get the cinnamon raisin swirl bread and avoid the desperate situation, when God rolls up on us with that desperate situation, we're going to have the thought, why doesn't he like me? I thought we were good. I thought God and I had a good relationship. Why is he coming at me with this desperate situation? We need to understand how God views desperate situations. It'll help us in our own. And this is how God views desperate situations. He views them as an opportunity to paint a masterpiece. And that's our big idea this morning, is that God paints masterpieces on the canvas of desperate situations. To God, a desperate situation is a blank canvas ready for a masterpiece, a work of art. He's not afraid of that. In fact, he's rushing into those desperate situations. We're going to find that all over the book of Ruth. And we're going to see it as we begin this morning. In Ruth chapter 1, we're going to hit verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. You can follow along with me, please. It says this. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land, a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Ugh. You ever read a passage of scripture and just go, ugh. It's a gut punch. Even that last sentence. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. This is the word of the Lord to us. This morning. What we're going to do, we're going to uh, do uh, things a little bit different this morning. We're going to walk through this text and kind of look at two parallel themes that are related, but they're distinct. And normally we wait for our application till the end, but I'm actually going to work it in as we go because these two narratives are kind of, they're distinct enough to where we want to pull application as we go. That'll make the, the sermon feel a little bit longer on the front end, uh, and maybe it is a little bit longer. I don't know. I'll do my best, but Um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to see these two parallel narrative themes. One is compromise, and the other is tragedy. And they run right alongside one another. They're connected, but they're also distinct. Before we do that, let me just set the stage for us. The book starts with this sentence. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. If you know your Bibles, which hopefully you do, but if you don't, that's okay. Read the book of Judges sometime. And you will find probably the darkest, most despairing book in the Bible. The book of Judges is in some ways, straight up twisted. It's dark. It's one of those books that people who criticize the Bible go to and say, this is your scripture? There is rape, there is murder, there is pillaging, there is just all sorts of stuff all over the book of Judges that is nasty. It's dark. There's this kind of cyclical uh, theme in the book of Judges in which the people of God, they've entered the promised land that that was promised to Abraham. They've entered the land in the book of Joshua. They were called to drive out all of the inhabitants, but they didn't drive them all out. And so they start this this kind of cycle in Judges where there's no king, uh, but there's people who rise up and rule over the people, And they have this little cycle where they do really well, they worship God, they serve him, and then once they start to prosper, they forget about God, they start to worship other gods, and then everything goes downhill. And it goes really dark, really fast. And then God allows judgment upon his people. I like to think about it as discipline towards his people, to bring them to a place of desperation that they would cry out to him again, and he rescues them, and he raises up a new judge to lead them to a place of worshiping him again, and they do, and then they get prosperous, and then it all repeats over and over throughout the book of Judges. That is the cycle, and their lows are the lowest of lows in the Bible. They are, there are some really bad, uh, depressing stories in the book of Judges. And this is how the book of Judges ends. You can look there with me if you still have your Bible open to the book of Ruth. It's the last sentence in Judges. It's a summary statement of the whole book. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. I like another translation. It says, everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. That sentence makes this a very relevant book for you and I. All the Bible is relevant, But in particular, as we think about our time and our place, our culture, is there a more America in 2024 statement than everyone did whatever seemed right to him? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is us, isn't it? This is us. I heard this week on a podcast somewhere, I can't remember who said it, but they said, truth is whatever your colleagues will let you get away with. That's the world we live in. Truth is whatever your colleagues will let you get away with. Truth is whatever doesn't get you canceled by the people that you don't want to be canceled by. Everyone does whatever is right in our own eyes. And because of this, there is famine in the land. Now, famine throughout the Bible is associated with God's judgment or God's discipline. Famine is also a result of conquest. So typically when a, a people are conquered by another people, the fields are burned, they try and starve them out. And so there's often a resulting famine. So as we drop into the book of Ruth, as we drop into this time in history, we know we're in the book of Judges, which is a dark time, but it has its highs and its lows. Because there's a famine, we know that we're at one of the lows. That The people of Israel have probably recently been conquered, and they're experiencing famine as a result of that military conquest. Depressing, right? That's where we're at. And now that we have that stage, we see these two narrative themes that play out. The first is a slow drift. The first narrative theme that we find is a slow drift. So there's famine in the land, and it says, A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and his two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. And here's the drift. They go to Moab to stay for a while, to sojourn there, to make a, a temporary trip, essentially. That's the goal as they set out. We'll talk more about what it means that they left, but their goal is simply to stay for a while. But then we find at the end of uh, verse 2, they entered the fields of Moab and settled there. They put down roots. They left. They meant to just leave for a little while, but in this slow drift, they end up going, you know what, let's just stay here. Now, as we read uh, this text, with our experience, with our cultural experience, it probably doesn't jump out to you that a man would take his family and leave their homeland during famine. A lot of us would go, yeah, that sounds reasonable. uh, Most of us probably in this room, I know many of us are transplants. Many of us, myself included, we weren't born here in Arizona. We moved here. We came from a different land and we moved here and that's okay. We don't see anything wrong with that and really there isn't. But for These people, at this time, there was a lot wrong with that choice. You see, the people of God, at this point, are tied to the land through a promise. The experience of living in the promised land is a religious experience. It's a cultural experience. It speaks to your relationship with God and his people. God has promised this land, and he has promised this land to be a place where his blessing is uniquely experienced among his people. And so for Elimelech to take up and leave, it's like he's turning his back on the promises of God. It's like he's turning his back on the people of God. In fact, to go to Moab, we'll talk more about Moab and its roots in a minute, but to go to Moab, he would have to cross the Jordan River. Again, if you know your Bibles, you know that in the book of Joshua, the people of God cross the Jordan on dry land into the promised land, and it is this amazing moment They're finally in the promised land. They cross the Jordan into the promised land. And here Elimelech would have had to go back across the Jordan. It's like he's reversing the promise. Yeah, I'm good. I'm out of here. Well, why does he leave? Because there's a famine and there's a deep irony to the fact that he's from Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And yet he's leaving because his family is starving. He's leaving the house of bread because his family is starving. But this departure from the the promised land even in the midst of famine would have been a shame inducing and a shameful choice especially where he goes he goes to the land of moab again more dark times in the scriptures but read genesis 19 sometime and you'll find out about the origins of the moabites the the moabites come about from an incestuous relationship between lot and one of his daughters okay so if you're not familiar with the Bible, Lot is the nephew of Abraham, who is the father of God's people, okay? So Abraham, father of the Israelites, Lot is his nephew, and there's an incestuous relationship that happens between he and actually two of his daughters, but from one of them come the Moabites, okay? So for an Israelite, the Moabites are like your gross cousin, okay? It's like, yeah, I guess we're kind of related, but ew. Okay, I don't know if you guys have a cousin like that. I do. <laughs> Lindsay met him on our first date. It was wonderful. Um, but that, that cousin that's just like, ugh, okay. Shameful story. Embarrassing story. That's the land of Moab. That's the Moabites. So for, for Elimelech to take his wife and his young boys and pick up and leave the promised land for Moab, do you see the, the weight of that decision for him? Do you see the drift that's happened? You see how he's turned his back on the people and the promises of God. But can you also understand how, for Elimelech, it probably just felt like it was easier. It's just more convenient. There's not a lot of food here. There's a lot of drama here. There's like all this craziness of like we're doing well, then we're not, and then we get conquered, and then we cry out. Like this is eh, this is all tough for me, guys. I'm just going to go somewhere else. It's just easier. It's just more convenient. So they leave, and they go to Moab. And that drift continues once in Moab. We see this. They go to just stay for a while, but then they settle there. And then Elimelech dies in verse 3. We find that he dies. And his sons, in verse 4, pick up on this slow drift. And they continue in their father's slow drift. It says, uh, Naomi's sons took Moabite women as their wives. And again, for us reading that, we might not think that's a big deal. Uh, a, a lot of us have mixed uh, cultural families. I do. And you go, oh, that's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. It is wonderful in today's age. But at this point in the, the redemptive history of God's people, He was actually calling them to separate themselves. A really practical call, simply because when they mixed, when they intermarried with other peoples, they would end up worshiping those gods and falling away. Okay? So God says, no. Stay within the people of Israel when you marry, okay? Don't go outside because those people are going to pull you away to worship other gods. We're establishing a new community here in the promised land. Clean it out of all the others and don't intermarry. Let's set up this beautiful, uh, this beautiful community of people who love God and love each other. And if you marry outside of that, you're going to get pulled away, okay? Those are, th- that would have been the operating assumption for an Israelite at this time. But here... In the drift of Elimelech and his sons, they think, well, we're in the land of Moab. You know how hard it would be to go back to Israel and find a wife? It's just easier. It's more convenient for us to just find a wife here. Why go all the way back to Israel, try and find a woman, and then convince her to move to Moab with me because I've settled down there? Like, this, it's just easier. It's easier. It's more convenient to marry a Moabite woman. Now, the Moabite marriage actually specifically has a curse associated with it in Deuteronomy. Did you know that? There's a, a curse, it's, it's called the, the Moabite curse in Deuteronomy 23. And so when, when Elimelech's son, when Malon and Kilion decide to marry Moabite women, they are, they've drifted so far that they are signing up for this curse right here. I'll read it to you. This is Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly Quick. No, the Ammonites were descendant from the other incestuous relationship with Lot and his other daughter. I know. Genesis 19, go read it sometime. Sorry, it's gross. It's the Bible. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may enter the Lord's assembly. When Melon and Kilion are deciding we are gonna marry Moabite women, they are signing up for this curse. 10 generations of our family Will not enter the Lord's assembly. Do you see the drift? But at this point, they're like, well, it's just easier. It's just more convenience. We're in the land of Moab. Who knows if we're going to go back to Israel? It's just easier. Let's just Mary, let's settle down. Here's a problem with this choice. Following God has never been the easy or convenient choice. Never has been, never will be. In fact, let me share with you Jesus' words. Obviously, the boys in Moab wouldn't have had these words, but um, this is true throughout the Bible, and it's true throughout human history. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 7, talking about what it means to walk in the kingdom of God. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. This has always been the case with following God. The, 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 this is just easier, this is more convenient road is broad. Meaning it's easy to get in and it's easy to walk on. There's lots of room here and there's lots of people on it. But the road of faithfulness, the road of following God, is the, the way is narrow. And the road is difficult. It's not for those looking for the easy or convenient routes. But Elimelech and his sons have jumped on that road. And I want to stop here and just talk quick application before we move to our second narrative theme. How do we think about this in our own lives, this slow drift? Here's what I want to challenge you with as we think about living this out. Beware of the subtle slide of convenience. Beware of the subtle slide of convenience because you and I are not all that much unlike Elimelech and his sons. We make a lot of choices because, you know what, it's just easier. It's just more convenient. We, we want life to be easy. We live at a time where easy and convenience are two of the most important cultural values we have, aren't they? Everything we do is about ease and convenience. Here's the word we use, user-friendly. Right? User-friendly. We want a life that is user-friendly. All of us do, don't we? Don't you want a life that's user-friendly? Are you like me with tech, where if you hit the smallest speed bump, you revert to 10-year-old you in, in, in your frustration and your anger? No, we want an easy life. We want it to just be convenient and easy. And here's the problem. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life? And those words of Jesus are hard, aren't they? Here's a reality, church. Quote, reasonable, reasonable choices can be the enemy of a vibrant spiritual walk with Jesus. Reasonable choices can be the enemy of life with God. Why? Because faith isn't reasonable. Faith is trusting in things you cannot see. That is not reasonable, is it? Faith is believing in promises that you are are trusting will happen, but you can't see. Reasonable is seeing famine and saying, I'm going to leave. Isn't it? We, We understand. It's pretty reasonable. It takes faith to say, God has called me here. And even though I'm facing starvation, I'll stay. That's a faithful decision. So we have to be aware of the subtle slide of convenience because how often does a, quote, season turn into a new normal which slides into compromise? I went to Disneyland this week with my family, so I have to give the obligatory uh, Disney illustration, right? In Disneyland, I noticed what, what I've coined. I haven't trademarked it yet, so you can use this for now. But I noticed the Disney drift, the Disney drift, and some of you are nodding because you already know where I'm going. You ever notice as you're walking around Disneyland, there's like, it's like a river with currents of people that are just like whoosh, swooping through, and if you're not careful, you just get caught up in a current of people, and you start like, where am I going right now? I was headed to, I don't even know the names of the places, okay, I'm not a Disney person, so like Tomorrowland or whatever, I was headed there, but all of a sudden I'm in this place that looks like a jungle. How did I get here? I just got like this stream of people just took me here, yeah, I watched it happen to my kids where I'm like, Gu- guys, no, no, over here. I know the crowd is just kind of like taking you that way, but there's this drift that happens because you're just having fun and you're just going about things, you're just walking along, and, and you, just get, you just drift. You go to Disneyland with, with hopes of not gorging yourself on sugar, but then you see everyone has Dole Whip in their hand. And before you know it, you're double-fisting Dole Whip. It's a Disney drift. You know, like you have your budget when you go there. You're like, I'm going to stick to my budget and then they they put this those really cruel gift shops at the end of every ride and your kids have to have them they have to have those gifts or they'll die it's a life and death situation they have to have them so you just drift along okay get another toy there goes the budget right if you're not careful you might even end up walking around looking like a fool with mouse ears on your head Sorry, that was gratuitous. I shouldn't have, should have that in. It's a Disney drift, though, right? You're just there. You're just going along. You're not really thinking about it. Oh, here we are. Isn't life that way sometimes? You just keeping up with everyone around you. Just going where they go. Well, well, they let their kids do it, so I guess our kids can do it. Like, oh, well, everyone else is doing it in the church. Here I am. And before you know it, you look back and you go, "I crossed the Jordan River. I went back over. I, I, I'm so far away from the promises of God." That even if this decision means a curse of 10 generations, I'm this far away now, what does It does not matter? God understands. It's just easier. It's just more convenience. We'd beware of the subtle slide of convenience. So that's the first narrative theme that we see, this, this compromise, this slow drift. And secondly, we see tragedy, a tragic outcome a tragic outcome as we look at what happens to Naomi. Now, let me just pause, and, and I don't want to draw too sharp of a connection between the drift and the tragedy, because we don't know what Naomi's level of participation in the drift was. She, she wouldn't have had a lot of agency, actually any agency, when Elimelech decided to move the family to Moab. We don't know if she cheered on that decision or if she resisted it. We don't know. Her, her husband's marrying Moabite women. She would have had a, a bit of influence there, but still, at the end of the day, they're going to marry who they want, right? So we don't, I don't want to draw too sharp of a distinction between the drift and the consequences, but it's just the reality. Naomi's along for the ride, and the outcome is tragic for her. Look at the devolution of Naomi's story. You start with the fact that we're, our setting is in the book of Judges. You know, presumably she, she was born in a time in Israel when they're in the promised land. There's optimism, there's hope. Generations of Israelites look forward to this time in this place. And here she is, born into it. And, and hopefully looking forward to a life of faithfulness, walking with God in the land He promised. But she was born at the wrong time, in the time of the judges, when faithfulness was, was not common. And then she lives through a famine. She gets married, she's got small kids likely, and now she's experiencing famine. She's facing starvation. And if that's not bad enough, her husband moves her to Moab, out of the promised land, back across the Jordan, into The land of Moab, this shameful place with a shameful history. And once there, her husband dies. So now she's there with her two sons, and she's a widow in a foreign land. But it gets worse. Her husbands marry Moabite women. And now she's got this curse to deal with, this Moabite curse that ten generations of her grandkids, if you're a grandparent, think about this, that ten generations of her grandkids will not enter the Lord's assembly. But hey, she has grandbabies, right? Oh wait, no, actually the women are barren. There's no kids. In 10 years, there's no kids, which barrenness is another sign of God's discipline or God's judgment. So the story's devolved even more. These women can't have kids or are not having kids. And then, as if it couldn't get bad enough, her boys die. This is a depressing start to the story, isn't it? The language here in, in verse 5, both Melon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two children. The language there is like she was left without her babies. Her, her boys. Obviously, they're adults at this point, right? They're married, but to her, those are her Babies. To her boys. She's left without her two children and without her husband. Naomi is empty. She's alone. Her, her financial prospects would have been tied to the men in her life. Her physical security would have been tied to the men in her life. Her hope, her future, it all would have been tied to the men in her life. And now she's described by what she doesn't have. She's without her two children and without her husband. Naomi is desperate. She is desperate. The only thing she has left is her two daughters-in-law who are Moabite women. Probably not even her first choice. Who knows if they're going to stick around? Well, if you know the story, you know. But as far as she's concerned, what does she have left? She is left without Everything that makes a woman valuable in this culture. What makes a woman a woman in this culture is her status as a wife and as a mother. And then in old age, as a grandmother. She has none of that. She doesn't have community. She's in a foreign land. She's desperate. We, um, we started the year with this theme of if all else fails, what remains? And we're going to stick with that theme throughout the year. We're going to keep coming back to that. And Ruth is an apt book to start with because for Naomi, all else has failed. What remains for her? What does she have left? Here's what remains. An opportunity for faithful steps forward in the pitch black darkness of desperation. That's all she's left with, an opportunity. And here's what it's going to take. It's going to take her going in the exact opposite direction of her husband and her sons. It's going to take her going back to the people of God, back to the promises of God, reversing the drift away from walking with the Lord and going back to him. And all she has left is the option to take those faithful steps forward now if you are a critical listener at this point you're going hold on you said at the beginning your big idea was that god paints a masterpiece where's the masterpiece this just looks like a blank canvas of despair doesn't it desperation i want to read the story in its context So let me jump to Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. And just tell you how the story ends. I won't tell you how you get there. We've got to come back every Sunday to figure out how we get there. Or read it on your own and come back. But here's how the story ends. So we start with Naomi in complete desperation. She's left without her babies, without her husbands, in a foreign land. Drifting away from walking with the Lord. She is as far away as an Israelite woman at her time could get that's how the story starts here's how it ends Ruth chapter 4 verse 17 says the neighbor women said a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed he was the father of Jesse the father of David do you know who David is king david you know the most prestigious king in all of Israel's history so somehow We're going to get from Naomi has nothing to she's got a boy on her lap. And the women around her are saying a son has been born to Naomi. His name is Obed. Oh, and by the way, Obed is the great grandfather of King David. Oh, and by the way, King David is in the lineage of the Messiah, King Jesus, the Savior, Do you see the masterpiece? This woman whose story starts out in complete desperation with nothing and no one ends with her being in the lineage of the Savior, the King, Jesus. How does God do that? Well, God paints masterpieces on the canvas of desperate situations, but we shouldn't be surprised by this story because this is our story, isn't it? Kara started this morning with us reading from Ephesians 2. Let's go back there. This is our story from desperation to masterpiece. I'll start in verse 1. I've got it up here for you to follow along. It says this. It says all of us, if you are a Christian, this was your story. If you are not a Christian, this is your story. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now at work in the disobedient. We too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath as the others were also. That is desperate. You and I were dead in our sins. You and I were children of wrath. You and I had no hope, no God, no Father. We had nothing. We were all doing what was right in our own eyes with no king. What a desperate situation. If you're not a Christian, you may not feel this, you may not believe this, but this is how the Bible describes you. You are dead in your sins. You are a child of wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way because God paints masterpieces on the canvas of desperate situations. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. That's a masterpiece. He also raised us up with him and seated us in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in christ jesus that is a masterpiece for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourself it is god's gift the gift of a masterpiece not from works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship God wants to use us to create more masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Church, this is our story. This is is your story. You were desperate. And from the canvas of that desperation in Christ, God painted a masterpiece. Why? Because he's kind. Because of his love. Because he's God not because of you not by works that you did but because he's kind now here's a question for us i think we all read Ephesians 2 and we go yes that's my story god created a masterpiece on my canvas of desperation we can read Ephesians 2 and we can yes and amen that but what about our everyday des- uh, every day desperation what about those situations everyday that have us feeling desperate? Do we believe God can still paint a masterpiece? Do we believe God can still do something beautiful? I think for a lot of us, we are like a and we say, well, I, I get God can do great things, but I'm starving here. I don't want to die. If we're honest with ourselves, we feel like it's better to live in Moab than to die in Israel. It's better to just... Go back over the Jordan and at least live. God understands. So how do we live this out? How do we trust God to paint a masterpiece in our desperate situations today? Two live it out points, and then we'll wrap up here. First is don't fear your desperate situation. Perfect love casts out all fear. The Bible says that, okay? Perfect love casts out fear. To the extent that we understand and embrace the love of God, it will free us from fear fear. Don't fear your desperate situation. Instead, lean into God knowing that he is the one who works masterpieces in desperate situations. Take him at his word and at his actions. Lean into God through prayer. What has you feeling desperate? What has you trying to, what situation are you trying to avoid? Beeline to the bread aisle and hope the desperate situation doesn't find you. What is that situation? Rather than running to the bread aisle, lean into prayer. Have you prayed prayers to God recently where you just say, God, I am desperate? Here I am, Lord, I can't fix it. Here I am, Lord, I've been running from it. God, I'm afraid to be alone. God, I'm afraid of the bills. God, I'm afraid of the prognosis. God, I'm scared for my kids. God, I am desperate. Don't fear. Lean into God. Those desperations are an opportunity. They're an invitation to lean into your kind and loving father. Lean into him in prayer. Lean into the body. What we're going to find for Naomi is her first step of faithfulness is to go back to the people of God. And it's hard for her because to be a widow... To, be, uh, to, to have her sons die, it, people would have recognized there is clearly like a curse on her. There would have been social uh, kind of ostradi- ostracization that would happen for her. The, the people would be like, I don't really want to get all that close to this mess of a person. So to come back to Israel, oh man, it takes faith. To face that, that takes faith. And that's going to be her first faithful step and and I would challenge you in your desperation lean into the body of the people of God be real with those around you about the, the the situations that have you fearful and desperate I guess the first question is do you know anyone well enough to be real with them do they know you well enough for you to be real with them but lean into the body take the next faithful step I know it's pitch black I know it I've got my own desperation. I've got my own fears. It is pitch black sometimes. Take the next faithful step. Lean into prayer. Lean into the body. And secondly, so don't fear your desperate situation. Secondly, be God's paintbrush and someone else's masterpiece. I won't spoil the whole story for you, but the way that we get from Ruth 1, where Naomi is empty and desperate, to Ruth 4, where we find... The the son, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the way that we get there is remarkably unmiraculous, actually. It's through a series of steps of people who are just walking out the Torah. They're walking out the law of God. You know that boring part of the Bible that when you start your Bible through a year program, you fall asleep and you don't make it through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, because you're like, ah, oh, it's just as brutal. Okay. The way that Ruth, the way that Naomi goes from Ruth 1 to Ruth 4 is from people simply, faithfully walking out love of God and love of neighbor. That's all they're doing. It's really not miraculous, other than the fact that it's totally countercultural in a time where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Otherwise, it's quite unmiraculous. They're simply loving God and loving others. And when you do that, you are a paintbrush in the hands of the great artist, creating masterpieces for those in desperate situations around you. Would you be used by God in that way? I want to invite the band up as we close. God paints masterpieces on the canvas of desperate situations. In church, we live in a world that is desperate for something more. We do. We live in a world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes and, and everyone is so afraid that they're going to lose what they have because they've got no one to back them up. And you know what? That's true if they're outside of Christ. But that's not true of you and I, is it? We don't live in a, a, a world of scarcity where we have to fear the famine. We live in a world of God's abundant kindness and goodness to us in Christ Jesus because we were dead in our sins but he made us alive and what happens when the world around us sees a people living differently walking out the simple commands to love God and love neighbor what happens I think they see hope they see what we're going to see in the book of Ruth which is a God who is kind exceedingly kind A God who cares about your desperate situation. A God who wants to use your desperate situation to paint a masterpiece. Where else can you find that? It's only in Jesus. May we be those who show the world the the beautiful arts of our King and Creator as we love Him and love one another. Let me pray for us. We'll sing and we'll take communion together. Lord, we look at this story of Naomi some of us resonate with those words. She was without her babies, without her husband. For some of us this morning, Lord, we come with empty hands without the things that defined us, without the things that say, uh, speak success to those around us. We come in places of desperation. And some of us, Lord, come this morning not feeling our sense of desperation because we've drifted so far from you. We've insulated ourselves because we're afraid, because we don't want to be lacking, because a series of decisions ago we didn't think that you would come through. And Lord, we all come to you this morning and we are banking Your kindness. Your grace and your kindness is all we've got. It's our only hope. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us in our desperation to lean into you. I pray that you would help us in our drift to run back to you. Lord, I I pray that we would believe that you are the kind and loving and, patient and gracious God that you present yourself to be in the book of Ruth through the story of Naomi and Ruth. God, would we believe that? Or would we follow you? And will we show the world a God of love and kindness? Lord, we can't do this on our own. We need you to do it in us and I pray that you would. It's in your name. I really hope that you were encouraged by the sermon today. You can learn more about us at anchorchurchgilbert.com. We'd love to have you join our mailing list. You can do that on the website. If you have any questions for us about who Jesus is, please let us know through our website. I hope that you were encouraged.